Let us as the church of God hear him as he speaks to us this morning. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their children's children to the third and fourth generations. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear Lord in heaven, we would ask for your great blessing upon us as we turn to your word at this time. Speak in transforming ways into our hearts, we ask through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. If you would, grab your Bibles and you want to turn to Exodus, Exodus chapter 34. Exodus is early on in your Bibles, second book in the Bible, you should be able to find it. We believe certain essentials. Here's one of them. We believe in one God, the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things, infinite, perfect, and eternally existing in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To him be all honor, glory, and praise forever. We believe in one God, the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things, infinite, perfect, and eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To him be all honor and glory and praise forever. You might think that it's kind of unnecessary to state that belief in God and the influence that belief in God has upon our everyday life is something that we actually need to verbalize. You might think that it's kind of uh, redundant or self-evident for us to have a belief in God, so why is it that we're bothering to actually state it in the ways in which we are? You might think that way, and I'm afraid that you would be wrong. Uh, at least I think so. I believe that it's important for us to state something as self-evident, as clear to us that our belief in God is something that is essential to the way in which we live our lives. Now, I think that way for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that it is so very easy, I believe, for God to fade into the background of our lives. It's so easy for God to fade into the background, for us to not attend to him the way that we should. Here is a prominent Presbyterian pastor just in the past week or two has made this statement, this argument, that he is a pastor and he wants people to come to church and what they do when they gather in church for this reason, to explore deep questions about life and to push ourselves to become better humans. So for this leader of this rather prominent congregation, his intent is to explore deep questions about life and to push ourselves to become better human beings. Now, I have to tell you that we explore deep things about life. We do that here. I hope we do that each and every week. 
that there's not a single week where we don't touch upon the deep things of life. I also hope that we are able to encourage one another and push one another to become better human beings. There's nothing wrong with either of those ideas, but do you see something that is vastly missing? What we want when you come to church at this place is to know that it is essential for us to put Christ at the center of all things, to put God on the center stage in the dramedy of my life, uh, the comedy, uh, my, the drama of my life. I am the central actor. I'm in center stage. If you picture a show of, a, you know, you would go to a play or a theater production of my life, I'm at center stage. I'm standing in the middle. Now, there are other things that are important that are also on the stage. My family is on the stage. Um, Hebron Church is on the stage. Uh, God is on the stage. Um, but as I go through my life, uh, there's, there are no cats on my stage. Uh, you know, there are Hallmark movies and stuff like that. But as, as I go through the drama of my life, things move in, in and out of my, my uh, they get closer to the front or they fade into the background of my stage of my life because it's my life and it's a, I'm at the center of my life. And it is only when we come to church here or when we uh, submit ourselves to the scriptures, or when we come before our Lord in prayer, that we realize that that is exactly dead wrong. The center of my life, the core, the thing that is at the forefront of the stage of my life is not me. It is God himself. I am a supporting actor, not somebody that fades into the background, but somebody that is present God is the central key thing, the central key idea, the central key being on actor on the stage of my life. About two years ago or so, um, we have a pulpit sitting here in the middle of our stage, the physical stage here that we're talking about now. We have a pulpit that is here. And about two years ago or so, I got myself all wound up talking about something, and I moved in front of the stage, and I was talking about something, and you know, then after a while, I moved off of it. I heard that week from two to three different people that I had moved in front of the pulpit. Now, okay, they weren't frustrated with me. I wasn't frustrated with me, but I don't want to do that. At the center stage is Jesus Christ. It's too easy for God to fade into the background of our lives to be a bit player. Now, uh, trust me, if you go to this Presbyterian pastor that I cited earlier and you said, well, is God important? He would say, absolutely. How can we explore the deep questions about life without touching on God, without God being present? How can we become better human beings without God being present? I have every confidence, I don't know this gentleman, but I have every confidence that what he would do is he would say, yes, God's an important factor in these decisions, in these processes. He's a tool that is being used. He is a servant for us as we explore these questions. My friends, that can never be. God is not a tool or a servant that we pull from the back part of the stage into the center part of our lives whenever we need him. We are the Lord's servants, not the other way around. In the drama that is your life, you will consistently seek to be in the center stage and to push 
even the most important person in your life, God himself, into the background. And one of the essentials that we hold here at this church is to help each and every one of us, beginning right up here at the front all the way through, to reorder that idea and to be reminded again that the central player, the core player of my life is Jesus Christ. That I am part of the supporting cast in my own story. And so are you. It's way too easy for God to fade into the background and so therefore we have to state as an essential that God is essential in our understandings of what we do here as a church. But secondly also is this. Uh, John Calvin, a famous theologian from number of years ago had a significant influence on uh, our own congregation here. John Calvin stated that the heart is an idol factory. That is, that, that the human heart is a place that is constantly generating idols. It is constantly turning out idolatry in our lives. And part of the reason why we need to state and remind ourselves every week, if not every minute, that God is at the center of our lives because our hearts are consistently turning out idols. Now, when we think of idols, their idols come about through two different ways. Most of us tend to think of it as the first way here is that we take something from creation and we elevate it to a spot where it does not belong. We take something good, something that God has blessed us with, and we turn it into the ultimate, the center, the core. And most of us know of how we talk about things like money or fame or status or something like that, the pursuit of those things, or work is sometimes elevated in people's minds to a position that it should not be, to a position of, of God, an idol, and we recognize that. Most of us are not nearly as sensitive to the way that things like family, things like uh, uh, peace or safety, all of those things can be idols in which we pursue. That's true, but another way in which idols are formed is not just by elevating something that is created into a position of God and seeking to serve it, but also taking the God that is revealed to us and shaping and molding that God to fit our image or to fit what we are comfortable with. It is taking God and not, not uh, some created thing and making it God, but rather the very notion of God, the very idea of who God is, and turning him into something that we are comfortable with, something we can manage, something we can control. And you can see this most clearly, and I bet you you've had these conversations with people who say, well, the God that I believe in, and they start talking about the God that they believe in, and I always want to stop them and say, I don't care what God you believe in. I only care about the God who really is. Do you believe in the real God, or have you taken those parts of God that you don't like and shaved them away? Or have you taken ideas of God that you're uncomfortable with and you just don't focus on them? Or do you take the word of God where it is places where you are uncomfortable and you just say, well, I'm not going to deal with that. When we do that kind of thing, when we take the God who reveals himself to us and we sit there and say, well, let's work away this kind of idea because I'm uncomfortable with this or I don't like this, or, we are creating an idol. We are taking the true God and we are fashioning him, we are shaving off the rough edges that we don't like and making him into something that we can handle, something that we can control. And according to John Calvin, and I, in my own personal experience, it is absolutely true, those kind of things 
happen all the time. Our hearts are idol factories. They make idols out of everything that we run into, even the revelation of God himself. So if we're not to have an idol, if we're not supposed to worship God as an idol, how do we see God as he really is? How do we come to experience that which is true? How do we worship the true God? Well, it is through anything else that we would recognize. It is through self-revelation that we come to know God. In other words, this goes back to the essential that we looked at last week, the importance of Scripture. How do we know who God is? It is not because, oh, what I envision in myself, or it's not what the world tells me God is. It is who God tells me God is. And of course, God reveals himself so completely and totally in the scriptures, which again is where we turn if we want to answer the question, who is God? Who is it, this God, that we interact with, that we don't want to become an idol in our lives, but rather we want to stand in the center spot of our world? Well, where is that? Who is that God? We find that story in Exodus 34 is a great place to go for that description. So again, if you're there, in Exodus 34, verse 5 and following, the Lord Moses is eager to know about this God who has redeemed them. He, he wants to not create God in his own image, not worship God that he is comfortable with. He wants to know who this real God is that has so transformed his life. And so he says, God, show me who you are. Teach me who you are. Let me know who you are. And so in verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there. Uh, descended with the cloud. Whenever we read that, I think it's natural for us in, in our understanding to kind of picture, well, this is God is up above. God is in heaven. Somehow this is a, maybe a metaphoric way of, of articulating the fact that God came down. So God descends in a cloud and he's kind of, so he comes from heaven. How are you going to get from heaven? You're going to ride on a cloud or something like that. Um, that's not totally inaccurate, but the picture here with the scriptures, this is, um, if you're watching a movie and uh, the music begins to build and ships into a minor key, dun, 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 you know, something dramatic is about to happen because of this. That's what a cloud was for the Israelites. The cloud here is is picture of the Shekinah glory of God. It is the presence of, uh, a manifest presence of God's beauty and majesty. Everything that is overwhelming, everything that is glorious about God is articulated as kind of the, the imagery that the Israelites had in their mind was of a cloud. So whenever the cloud shows up in the scriptures, almost every single time it references not just the puffy stuff up in the air, but rather the imagery of the glory of God. And so here when we read this, and the Lord descended down a cloud, uh, all the Israelite readers of this text would hear, dun, 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 dun. you know, they, they go, oh, okay, something dramatic. This is about God's glory. This is about the the uniqueness, the majesty, the overwhelming character of God. And so the Lord proclaims his name. At the end of that verse, verse 5, the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, um, now again, the name of the Lord is not just the identifier. You know, I am, my name is Henry. Uh, it doesn't really say much about me. It just identifies me for who I am. But in the scriptures, when we talk about the name of something, we're identifying not just a, the, the item itself, but rather the character of the item. And so here, this is Yahweh, as, as Jerry read earlier, this is that language of Yahweh, I am who I am. 
The Lord proclaims his name. What does he proclaim in verse 6? The Lord, the Lord. Now, again, don't miss this. This is not the mighty one, the mighty one. This is the word Lord there is Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is the mighty one. Yahweh is the authority. Yahweh is the power. All of that is present here. But what is, is central to this notion, central to this idea, is this is the intimate one, the personal one, the relatable one. What God starts by saying, if you want to know who I am, this is the first characteristic, the first trait that I want you to know. I am who I am. And that's the name that you personally can call me. It's an intimate statement. It's a covenant statement. It's a, we are connected together. God here is stressing that the first element of knowing God, the first thing that he identifies here is this intimacy that exists between us. There are so many expressions of the Christian faith that happen in people's lives where the intimacy with God, the, the personalness of God is completely lost. God becomes some uh, idealized imagery in the back of your head or something. There's no love. There's no connectedness. And I think that whenever that is happening, we are losing sight of who God has revealed himself to be. He goes on then to say, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We could walk our way through each one of these character traits, but of course we'd be here for a long period of time. I want to kind of take them as a whole for a second. And notice this, what's central about those character traits? Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. In order to capture this, you have to kind of capture the fact that steadfast love here, the word is I'm going to love you despite the struggles that you bring into the relationship. That's kind of what God is saying. When in the steadfast love, it recognizes that it's a hard thing for God to do, to love us, um, those kind of things. Every one of those character traits is built around the idea that we are flawed. You're only merciful to somebody that needs mercy. You're only gracious to those who do not deserve it. You're slow to anger towards those whom it would be right to be angry. You forgive those who need forgiveness. In other words, here, God could have said, look, this is who I am, the infinite, the almighty, the all-powerful, the creator, the majestic one. And the rest of scriptures portray God very much so that way. And thank the Lord he does. So we have this full picture of who God is. But at this spot, when he comes to Moses and he says, if you want to know who I am, this is who I am. And the way that he describes himself is a God in relationship with us in our brokenness. In other words, the God who loves us and the God who identifies himself and says, I am Yahweh for you to relate with. He is well aware he is embracing the fact, he's identifying the fact that we are desperately in need of his grace and his mercy. He leads out with that. I am a God who is gracious 
and who is mercy. Look at what it says in verse 7 there. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. We've talked about this before. This is a comprehensive picture of our fallenness. That's what he's saying here. He says, take everything that is not good about you. I am the God who forgives all that. I am the God who is intimate with you in the midst of all of that trouble and all of that problem. And all too often, we operate within Christian circles which deny the fundamental brokenness of humanity. And therefore, it robs God of this fundamental character trait that he is desirous to to describe to us. That he is a God who relates in love to us in our greatest need. Instead, a whole lot of the Christian faith in this world is built around ignoring or denying or distancing ourselves from our brokenness in such a way that God loses that very central characteristic, that core idea that places him at the center of the stage and should place him at the center of your lives is robbed from us. Because we miss that fundamental character trait of God. But it's, it's also that God is by no means one who will clear the guilty. This is not a puff piece about God. God is not showing you just all the things that you're going to love. He also identifies himself as the just one. The holy one. Who will know man's... And, and by the way, who will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children. And their children's children. And if you have ever suffered under the sin and brokenness of your parents or your grandparents, you know exactly what God is referencing here. Now, it's not mentioned here in this text, but the rest of scriptures articulate the God who reveals himself to us as triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's why so much of the early service stressed that characteristic of God. But the reality is, is that that is so far beyond our grasp and understanding that a whole lot of people say, if I can't grasp it, I'm just going to ignore it, if not deny it. And there's a lot of those folks that call themselves Christian that have denied or have functionally denied it by ignoring the triune character of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, it is hard to understand. It's beyond our understanding but it is absolutely revealed to us that this is who God is. And unless we turn him into an idol by saying, well, I don't like that part of God, so I'm just going to ignore it, we cannot afford to do that. Every day we come before the Lord, we have to have that experience of coming before the God who is, who has revealed himself to us. How do we know that that's what you're experiencing here? This is what we want to communicate the essential character of God every time you come to worship. That's what we want you to experience. Now, does that mean that you'll walk away feeling good? If you walk away feeling good with things, if you like my sermon, if you like the music choices, if you like the person that you sat next to, most of you are sitting next to your spouse, so that's good. Um, if If you're happy with that kind of thing, then you had a good worship experience. Now, how do we know when we come face-to-face with the real God? Well, our text identifies it under the response and under requests. Look at the response of Moses in verse 8. 
And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. How do you know if you've come face to face with the real God when you come here to worship? Quickly, that is, is it happening automatically? Does it happen because you come face? Look at how people throughout the scriptures come face to face with the scriptures, with God, sorry, in the scriptures. Immediately, they react. Immediately, they are changed and transformed. Peter falling at Jesus' feet and knees. John uh, falling at Christ and worshiping him in Revelation chapter 10. Thomas saying, my Lord and my God, as he realizes who he's been standing before. Samuel, Saul, all of the people in the scriptures, when they are confronted by God, they immediately react. They react quickly to what is shown before us. Quickly, Moses bowed his head towards the earth. Now, in part, that's a physical expression of worship. But it's humility. It is humility. If you go from this place and you have not experienced humility in your heart, it is possible that you have not met here in this place the real God. Because in the scriptures, that's almost always the case. The one who meets with God is humble before him. And he worshiped. Worship is an undeniable reality of meeting with God. One of the things that I grates on my gears, that's a terrible thing to say. Uh, one of the things, scratch that, one of the things that really bothers me is the idea that believers can talk about God, can interact with God, and hold him at a distance as though it's just some philosophical being that is out there, or we're talking about distant theology, or we're talking about, if we're talking about him, how can we not worship him? If you come to this place, and if we are right that God is present in this place, how can you not, in the fullness of your heart, be worshiping him. And if you're not, a lot of that fault might lie with us up front here. But you've got to ask yourself, am I open to hearing the real God as he shows himself to me? Because when I see him as he is, Moses here is humble and falls at his face and worships the Lord God. Notice his requests in verse 9. Coming out of an interaction with the real God, what do you request? If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. Presence. Please, God, now that I see you as you really are, be present with me always. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. Presence and pardon. Because, Lord, now that I see you as you really are, I realize what I really need. And take us for your own inheritance, possession. Lord, possess me. Not weirdly, but may I be your possession. Take me as your inheritance. Grant to me your presence. Grant to me your pardon. Brothers and sisters, 
if God's at the center of the stage, if God is the center one of your drama of life, then every minute of your day is going to be marked by a quick pursuit of humility and worship of him. And your requests are going to be for more of him. Lord, bring more of your presence into my life. There's going to be for pardon, a greater recognition of your need for pardon and God's gift of pardon into our lives and asking the Lord, please God, take me as your inheritance. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we thank you for the blessings of this, your word again, for the revelation of yourself, for speaking so well to us through your word. Lord, it is easy for me to push you into the background, for each of us to become the rulers of our own lives. But Father, you are at the center stage. We know that to be true. Help us give ourselves over to that, Lord, so that you might pardon us, so that we might become your possession, and Lord, so that we might experience your presence with us now and forevermore. We pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.